This is the Daily Signal podcast for Thursday, June 23rd. I'm Virginia Allen. And I'm Doug Blair. Operation Warp Speed was an unprecedented fusion of government and private industry to create a vaccine to fight back against COVID-19. What normally would take four or five years to accomplish was done in less than one. Paul Mango, former deputy chief of staff for the Department of Health and Human Services and former liaison to Operation Warp Speed under President Trump, was there to make sure everything happened according to plan. He joins the show today to discuss his new book, Warp Speed, Inside the Operation That Beat COVID, The Critics, and The Odds. He details the story of how the vaccine was developed. But before we get to Doug's conversation with Paul Mango, let's hit our top news stories of the day. Two top Republican House members say they won't support the Senate's new gun legislation. The Senate voted to advance the gun legislation earlier this week in response to the shootings in Uvalde and Buffalo that in total left 31 people dead. Despite 14 Senate Republicans voting to advance the bill, House GOP members are voicing concerns. House Minority Leader Kevin McCarthy and Minority Whip Steve Scalise say they will vote no on the gun bill. Why? McCarthy and Scalise say they won't back the bill because it provides a path to fund the institution of red flag laws. Red flag laws allow an individual to flag another person as a danger to themselves or others and petition to have their firearms revoked. In a statement by the Freedom Caucus, top House officials explained that they cannot support any funding for red flag laws because Red flag laws permit the preemptive seizure of firearms from Americans without due process. It remains to be seen whether or not the gun bill will receive any bipartisan support in the House. Federal Reserve Chair Jerome Powell admitted during a Wednesday Senate hearing that raising interest rates could trigger a recession, but that it is essential that we bring inflation down. Here's Powell via NBC News. We are strongly committed to bringing inflation back down and we're moving expeditiously to do so. We have both the tools we need and the resolve it will take to restore price stability. Against the backdrop of the rapidly evolving economic environment, our policy has been adapting and it will continue to do so. With inflation well above our longer run goal of 2% and an extremely tight labor market, we raised the target range for the federal funds rate at each of our past three meetings. We are highly attentive to inflation risks and determined to take the measures necessary to restore price stability. Powell announced that the Fed would continue to increase interest rates until inflation rates began to slow. When pressed over whether or not raising interest rates like that could cause a recession, Powell said it's certainly a possibility, but that the Federal Reserve is not trying to provoke and will not need to provoke a recession. A survey of economists from the Wall Street Journal indicated that they believe there is about a 44 percent chance of a recession in the next 12 months. Yesterday, President Biden called on Congress to suspend the federal gas tax for three months. The national gas average was $4.95 per gallon on Wednesday, according to the AAA. Currently, the federal gas tax is 18.4 cents a gallon and 24.4 cents a gallon on diesel fuel. So if your car has a 15-gallon tank, it's costing you about $75 to fill up right now. And if the gas tax was put on pause, you'd be saving about three, maybe at most four dollars every time you filled up. Biden hopes that pausing the gas tax will bring relief to Americans at the pump. But some lawmakers are skeptical. In 2008, then presidential candidate Barack Obama called a pause on the gas tax a gimmick that allows politicians to say that they did something. 
Heritage Research Fellow for Energy and Environmental Issues Katie Tubb says the federal gas tax accounts for less than 4% of prices at the pump, and those prices are only going up. This temporary reduction will be even more laughable in the coming months as new heritage research shows that Biden's energy policies would increase gasoline prices by more than $2 a gallon every year between 2024 and 2040. Tubb added that ironically, temporarily suspending the tax could actually artificially incentivize short-term demand, driving prices right back up and wiping out any of the already meager savings Americans might experience. So what is the solution? Well, according to Tubb, Biden can help to reduce the prices at the pump by working with Congress to allow more domestic production and unleash our energy sector's capacity to explore, drill, refine, and transport oil and gas. That's all for headlines. Now stay tuned for my conversation with Paul Mango as we discuss his new book on Operation Warp Speed. As conservatives, sometimes it feels like we're constantly on defense against bad ideas. Bad philosophy, revisionist history, junk science, and divisive politics. But here's something I've come to understand. When faced with bad ideas, it's not enough to just defend. If we want to save this country, then it's time to go on offense. Conservative principles are ideas that work. Individual responsibility, strong local communities, and belief in the American dream. As a former college professor and current president of the Heritage Foundation, my life's mission is to learn, educate, and take action. My podcast, The Kevin Roberts Show, is my opportunity to share that journey with you. I'll be diving into the critical issues that plague our nation, having deep conversations with high-profile guests, some of whom may surprise you. And I want to ensure freedom for the next generation. Find The Kevin Roberts Show wherever you get your podcasts. My guest today is Paul Mango, former Deputy Chief of Staff for the Department of Health and Human Services and former liaison to Operation Warp Speed under President Trump. He's also the author of the new book, Warp Speed, Inside the Operation That Beat COVID, The Critics, and The Odds, available now wherever books are sold. Paul, welcome to the show. Hey, Doug. Thanks for having me. Of course. Operation Warp Speed was an unprecedented use of government resources to create a COVID-19 vaccine within a year. I think the average time to create a vaccine for a disease is somewhere in the time frame of like four to five years, but it was less than a year before we got a vaccine. How did that operation get started within the government? And then what was your role within that operation? Yeah, it's a, it's a great question. As you can imagine, in early 2020, the Department of Health and Human Services was very much focused on the entire pandemic response to include uh, repatriating a lot of Americans mm-hmm. from overseas, trying to get a laboratory test out to the market, uh, following the progression of the virus to determine some of its characteristics like and you spread it asymptomatically. Right. And uh, we had started, uh, even in January, um, collaborating uh, with Moderna. The NIH had had some work going on with Moderna beforehand. Mm-hmm. And when the um, virus broke out and the DNA sequence of the virus was published on January 10th, uh, the NIH and Moderna decided uh, to use that information to start to develop a vaccine. So there were a whole bunch of activities going on January, February into March, and we were granting hundreds of millions of dollars to different companies to get things started. The Secretary of Health and Human Services, Alex Azar, had spent 10 years in the pharmaceutical industry, and mm-hmm. he knew its risk thresholds, uh, what types of uh, financial 
um, Im- impact something like a vaccine could have. And this was in late March, and um, we uh, learned of a contract that we established with Johnson & Johnson for $450 million. And he started asking questions like, well, what what is that going to buy us? What is that $450 million going to buy us? And the answers we got were unsatisfactory because they sounded like business as usual. Mm. So Alex Azar, really the architect of Warp Speed, said, whoa, we need to stop right now and do not conduct business as usual. Mm-hmm. We need to do things radically differently. So um, it was his knowledge of the pharmaceutical industry uh, that really sparked uh, the inspiration, if you will, for Operation Warp Speed. Mm-hmm. It sounds like there was a sort of expectation that things would go very slowly if Secretary Azar didn't take those steps. Yeah, and one of the key things he recognized was we needed to start to manufacture doses of vaccines long before we knew whether we were going to have a good vaccine because what we wanted was the day that the FDA said this is an emergency use authorization, we wanted to be shipping millions and millions of doses of vaccine. Typically, what the pharmaceutical industry does is wait until it gets approval, mm. and then it starts manufacturing at scale. Right. So that was a big difference. And we also had to set up all of the logistics, which were really the more challenging part. We had to basically engage about 50,000 outlets for these vaccines, CVS, Walgreens, Walmart, grocery stores, hospitals. We had to get them all on an electronic system. We had to work with FedEx, UPS, McKesson, all these companies to make sure that once we had the vaccines, they could get to the American people. Right. Uh, so, you know, you had CBS and others hiring 10, 15, 20,000 individuals before the approval of the vaccine, training them how to vaccinate persons mm. and then putting them out into the country. That's That was really the beauty of Operation Warp Speed was doing things in parallel that used to be done in series. Does it seem like Operation Warp Speed has left an impact on how America will respond to future events like this. Obviously, if a vaccine on average before Operation Warp Speed was taking four to five years, but with Operation Warp Speed, we're able to power it out in less than a year, does that impact how we're going to do that in the future? Well, hopefully, Doug, that's that's actually one of the reasons I wrote the book is because I wanted a historical record of what we did differently. And I think it's important to note that the technology in the pharmaceutical industry had evolved uh, from the previous best time to develop a vaccine mm-hmm. as well. And everyone, I think, by now has heard of the mRNA technology, right. which is Moderna, it's Pfizer. That technology really permits one to develop a vaccine much more quickly than ever before. And that was critical to our success. I think the beauty of Operation Warp Speed and what hopefully is an enduring lesson for the government is all of the other aspects, Mm. Uh, really expanding manufacturing quickly and getting equipment and raw materials and labor and then getting the distribution channel set up. All of that, I think, are the lessons learned that the government can take away and say, we need to do this again, Mm -hmm. even better than what we did. As somebody who was there during the process, was there any resistance from inside the administration to making this program work? No, it's actually the opposite. Um, Once uh, Secretary Azar kind of conceived of this, we went over, I was with him hours every day. We went over to the White House and we talked to Jared Kushner. We talked to Mark Meadows. And then eventually we went in and talked to the president. Mm -hmm. We couldn't have had more support from them. And I write about this in the book, but a couple months prior to the launch of Operation Warp Speed, 
we had to turn to the private sector to manufacture tens of thousands of ventilators. I don't mm. know if many Americans remember that, but New York City and other places were really short of ventilators, and companies like GM and Ford converted their lines over very quickly to manufacture these ventilators. So within the administration and within the context of the pandemic, we had already experienced the mobilization of U.S. industry on behalf of the American people. So mm -hmm. when we explained this to those over there and, and the president, right away they got it and said, let's right. go. So we had nothing but 100 uh, percent support. Absolutely. So it sounds like the president was involved with this. Is there a way that this could not have panned out? Well, I guess what, what would you envision the pandemic looking like if Operation Warp Speed hadn't gone through? Yeah, it's interesting. There's a number of folks that are doing research on that. Um, the NIH actually put out a paper in the summer of 2021 saying that the pace at which we developed the vaccines uh, prevented 140,000 American deaths. Wow. The Commonwealth Foundation has been keeping track uh, well beyond that, and they say it's over 2 million oh, right wow. now, over 2 million deaths prevented mm -hmm. by the vaccines coming out faster than the normal, as you said, average for four to five years. Um, the Council of Economic Advisors also did a, 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 some research that said in the first six months of the vaccines being available, it prevented the loss of about one and a half trillion dollars of economic mm -hmm. output. So measured in lives, measured in economic output, um, fairly substantial. Right. Um, one of the things that you've talked a bit about during this interview is the collaboration between the private and the public sector in getting these vaccines in Americans' arms. Can you elaborate a little bit more on how that eventually kind of became the process that Operation Warp Speed went through? Sure. And there were actually three sets of collaborations that were very important. I'll get to the public-private one. First was between Department of Health and Human Services and Department of Defense. Mm. So it was a critical, what I call joint venture, where they provided an immense amount of logistical support, knowledge, experience, and contracting support. Mm -hmm. uh, HHS just didn't have the contracting right. capacity to engage the private sector. The second um, kind of collaboration was between the federal government and the public health jurisdictions. There's 64 of them. There are states. Some cities are their own public health jurisdictions, Puerto Rico, the Solomon Islands, right. and so forth. And we were collaborating with them all along the way so that they would be prepared to do what they needed to do. And then, as you mentioned, Doug, the most important one was between the federal government and the private sector. Mm -hmm. And we used some very important principles um, during this period uh, that guided the team. One was never let the federal government's reach exceed its grasp. Mm -hmm. And that's a, that's a cute way of saying don't get involved in things that you don't know how to do. Right. And then the second one we said is never let the federal government engage in any activity that the private sector can do better. Mm. And the first one, don't let your reach exceed your grasp, really was uh, deferring to the local authorities and the local public health jurisdictions. We didn't want to tell them how to vaccinate their citizens when they knew best how to get to them, how to get them back for their second doses. That was up to them. And when it came to the private sector, anything that had to do with innovation, what I call dexterity, really being able to move and change quickly, mm -hmm. we said, let's let the private sector do it. The government brought to bear the resources, the clarity, objective, 
the Defense Production Act and mm -hmm. the coordination. That's that's what we did to make it happen. It's interesting because, yeah, a lot of the time when I think a lot of people will imagine how a government program will work, the government tends to bear the brunt of the work itself. And it sounds like in Operation Warp Speed, what it was was mostly the private sector doing what it does best, moving quickly, moving flexibly to create these vaccines while the government just provided background support. Yeah, exactly. So again, we had unambiguously clear set of objectives for them, which is important. There was no uncertainty as to what we wanted them to do. We assumed a lot of the financial risk that they wouldn't normally assume. We reoriented the supply chain to favor vaccine production over virtually anything else in the country. Mm -hmm. And because we had probably 25 or 30 private sector partners, everyone from, you know, Needle manufacturing needles to inject the vaccines, to vials to carry the vaccines, to dry ice manufacturers to keep the storage of the vaccines under the right temperature. We played a key coordination role amongst all of them. And they were fantastic. I mean, these are great American iconic companies. I think everyone's heard of Johnson & Johnson and Pfizer and Moderna, but McKesson, UPS, FedEx, CVS, Walgreens, Corning, mm. Palantir, they were in the trenches with us 16 hours a day. They never complained, and uh, they should be you know, applauded for their efforts. People ask me sometimes, well, Paul, weren't you concerned that maybe they made a profit? Mm. And I said, well, I hope they did. <laughs> um, I really hope they did because right. uh, they put an enormous amount of effort, sure. uh, not only physical resources, but emotional resources into this. So. Mm -hmm. I think uh, we should be very proud of our private sector here. Yeah. Now, Paul, one of the things that we will hear a lot from critics, uh, and you even mentioned this in the subtitle of your book, that one of the things about Operation Warp Speed was that it beat COVID, the critics, and the odds. Uh, one of the critics will, thing will, critics will say is that the Trump administration didn't take COVID seriously or that they didn't do a good job with handling COVID. What do you, what do you respond to that? It's very interesting, Doug, because as time goes on, the wisdom of the Trump administration as it relates to COVID emerges as much more appropriate mm -hmm. than what we're seeing. And let me just give you a couple of examples. Learning loss in schools. Mm. We wanted all of our kids back in school in August of 2020. We sent out hundreds of millions of masks to these kids so that they could go back to school. We thought it was so important. Um, don't, don't shut down the economy. Um, mm. What we're learning is there's, as, as you've read, there's drug overdose, suicide, domestic abuse, there's deferred cancer screenings, all these things that occur that are really public health issues should be weighed against, are we controlling COVID? And I think the Trump administration recognized this early. It probably had an ideological bias toward this, meaning a more balanced approach to managing COVID. And then you had the new administration coming in, and it was bans, and it was mandates, and those types of things, uh, and shutdowns, which are going to unfortunately lead to, I think, a decade worth of public health and mm -hmm. economic problems. Right. The other part of the subtitle that I mentioned is that it beat the odds. Yeah. How are the odds stacked against this plan? Or I guess, where are you seeing that the odds weren't in the plan's favor that it was able to overcome? Yeah. It's... Believe it or not, it wasn't the science. Monsef mm -hmm. um, Slawi, our chief scientific advisor, whom we interviewed in early April, and he joined the team shortly thereafter, 
assured us we're going to have a good vaccine. Mm -hmm. That's not the challenge. The right. challenge will be manufacturing it at scale because his, you know, he's the most successful vaccine developer of our generation. And he said, you can, you can develop a good vaccine and you can manufacture it at five liters, but when you expand it to manufacturing at 2,000 liters, it has a mind of its own. These are biological organisms that are temperamental. That's mm. the word he used. And <laughs> you just don't know whether it's going to work. And yeah. we didn't have any excess manufacturing capacity for vaccines in the United States mm -hmm. in the spring of 2020. So we had to either expand or start from scratch 27 different facilities, raw materials, equipment, labor, the whole thing. Uh, so that was the um, the real challenge of Operation Warp Speed was manufacturing. It wasn't design of the and development of the vaccines. Right. So it was. It seems like more it was something that the private sector then was able to sort of assist with as yeah. well, in, as opposed to just kind of doing that. One final question for you, and I think that this is the one that probably most Americans are thinking about right now. We are currently looking back at the pandemic. I would say we're not nearly in the same situation we were when Operation Warp Speed first came into effect. Yeah. But the Biden administration seems to be really slow at removing a lot of these COVID restrictions, even now that thanks to Operation Warp Speed, we are seeing vaccines become widely available. How do you view the continuation of several of these different COVID restrictions in light of the impact from Operation Warp Speed? Great question. And I use this metaphor of a train that has left the station. The train is being conducted by the American people. Mm -hmm. And the Biden administration is sprinting to try to catch up and hop on the caboose. The American people are done with COVID. Right. That, that's clear. That was, that was a few months ago. Why they're holding on, I think it has a lot to do with uh, just a bureaucratic bias for believing that um, the government might know more than, than the American people, which is completely not the truth. Uh, we talked about learning loss. We talked about suicides. We talked about drug overdose. Um, the American people understand there needs to be much more balance between eradicating COVID, which is a, a, a foolhardy goal. We're never going to mm -hmm. eradicate COVID versus living our lives and all the other things we have to do. And I think the administration... It, COVID isn't the only issue where they tend to underreact too late. Mm -hmm. And I think that's what's happening now. The fact that they extended the public health emergency through October 15th now is, to me, uh, doesn't make any sense. So mm -hmm. I don't know. Underreacting too late might be the theme of uh, theme of this administration. It wasn't uh, for us. For President Trump. That was uh, Paul Mango, former Deputy Chief of Staff at the Department of Health and Human Services and formal liaison to Operation Warp Speed under President Trump. He's also author of the new book, Warp Speed, Inside the Operation That Beat COVID, The Critics, and the Odds, available now wherever books are sold. Paul, thank you so much for your time. Thanks for having me, Doug. And that'll do it for today's episode. Thanks so much for listening to the Daily Signal podcast. If you have not done so, please take a moment to subscribe to the Daily Signal podcast on Google Play, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, wherever you like to listen. And please leave us a review and a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts and spread the word to others. Thanks again for listening, and we'll be back with you all tomorrow. The Daily Signal podcast is brought to you by more than half a million members of the Heritage Foundation. The executive producers are Rob Bluey and Kate Trinko. Producers are Virginia Allen and Doug Blair. Sound designed by Lauren Evans, Mark Guiney, and John Pop. For more information, please visit DailySignal.com.